Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 24 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, July the 27th. First, I talk to Sonia Stephen, the CEO and founder of cinema ticket pricing startup Chuvi. The company is targeting $700,000 in an equity crowdfunding raise, and it's on a mission to put bums on empty cinema seats. Founded in April last year, the startup provides a third-party marketplace for cinema tickets with the dynamic pricing models altering the cost of your night out depending on demand. The app matches consumer data on location with the profiles users provide, the genres they like and the usage patterns to match moviegoers to available seats with Netflix-style notifications. And then I have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen, who has just had a run-in with Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman. Gruen is critical of the rigid formulas that economists use, which he explains is why they can't do proper forecasts. The weather forecasts are more accurate. But first, let's talk to Sonia Stephen. Sonia Stephen, tell us about your ticketing platform, Chuvi. Well, Chuvi's are a world-first independent dynamic ticket and marketing platform for the cinema industry. So if you think about the airline models, Chuvi prices a cinema ticket according to demand. So low demand session, low demand movie, uh, the ticket price will come down on Chuvi. 
High demand movie, high demand sessions, so Saturday night, opening week of Star Wars, you'll see the price go up to the top ticket price for that cinema. Right, and so how does it work technologically? Oh, wow, that's a big question. So um, basically, Chuvi is a, um, a really sophisticated platform in that we integrate with uh, numerous uh, different data providers, so that includes the ticketing platforms of the cinemas, so all, well not all, but uh, a vast majority of cinemas use a, a box office ticketing platform, so we integrate with them. We also integrate with data that brings in all of the movie assets, the trailers, the, the ratings, the synopsis, etc. Um, they're two of the predominant ones that we integrate with, but then there's also geofencing, locational services, etc. That then goes into uh, the Chuvi, I guess, administration, um, ad admin portal where the Chuvi um, uh, uh, dynamic algorithm kicks in and also our Chuvi notification algorithm. So they're two main algorithms that work. Firstly, uh, the dynamic algorithm. Basically what that does is it works within the parameters that a cinema gives us. So they might say, I'll never price below $10 and I'll never go on top of my top adult price of $21.25 and our algorithm will work between those by determining what is the demand for that particular session. Now, the two main factors that it looks of is what are the box office numbers, so what's the demand for that movie in real time and also what is the demand for the session. So cinema's attendance is a very high variable, not just within the week but within the day as well. And then the algorithm starts looking at um, external factors, weather conditions, state-based factors, uh, is it school holidays, public holidays, and then we start working off a cinema's specific, a specific venue's uh, demand. So we're, for example, we've got cinemas uh, up on the east coast that have a, a big FIFO fly-in, fly-out community. They might have a Wednesday morning session that's actually really busy because the fly-in guys and girls come in that morning. And the algorithm starts learning that for that particular venue, that session actually is a high-demand session. So um, match with that is our Chuvi notification algorithm. And what that does is it makes sure that we get the right ticket in front of the right person at the right time. So we look at when someone first started on Chuvi, what was the profile information they gave us? What genre they, do they like? Uh, what uh, actor, director, etc.? Um, then when they start using Chuvi, we look at the, the usage patterns on Chuvi. So what trailers are they looking at? How often are they coming in? Where are they buying tickets? What's, what, what movie, what session times, what price do they normally pay? You put those two together and then you overlay on top of that where is that person's device at that current time and then we'll kick out a notification to them, which we believe that person is 75% likely to act on that. So we're not going to send you... If you normally go and see Star Wars, we're not going to go and send you uh, a notification to go and see you to see, um, you know, beautiful Peter Rabbit kids' film. Then uh, that runs through our apps, which is iOS, Android and also web, and then the notifications that go out to the consumer or to the customer. And I would imagine you would have lots of partners, partner cinemas, for Yes, example. yes. So we... Uh, beta launched in April of last year across uh, 12 sites and we picked those sites <clears throat> excuse me, to make sure that we're working in different states, we're working with uh, multi-venue cinemas, um, single venue cinemas, single venue cinemas with multi-screen, single venues with one screen across four different states to make sure we had a good cross-section of the community. Uh, and that beta test for us was we needed to make sure that 
the whole premise, I guess, of Chuvi is through variance pricing, dynamic pricing, we could get people coming to the cinema more often. We closed that beta trial uh, at the end of December last year. And what our data showed us, or what our Chuvi goers showed us, was on Chuvi with dynamic pricing, a Chuvi goer will buy on average 13 tickets a year. So the industry average is someone will buy 3.4 tickets a year. So we gave that a big tick. And the second one we need to look at was what actually is the money coming into the cinema's till. Uh, on average, the spend uh, for, the, for the, the average population is, is around $60 per annum at the box office, and on Chuvi that's moved up to $180. So we gave that one a big tick too. And at the start of this year, we rolled out across Australia. We've now got 50 cinema partners, uh, and we're increasing that between six and eight cinemas each month. And I would imagine that would be good for them because that would allow them to tap into their market, wouldn't it? Exactly, yeah. So it's been a really, it's, it's been a very positive thing. You know, in Australia, uh, much the same of uh, the other big movie markets, the UK, Ireland and the US, occupancy is seven, less than 20%. So in Australia, it's only 17%. It's declining. It's declining, yeah. So revenue has been slightly increasing and that comes with a lot of gold class offerings or premium offerings but actual attendance numbers are coming down. Um, the other big benefit for a cinema is not just that you're selling a, a ticket that would otherwise go uh, unsold, is for every person that walks in the front door, they're likely to buy a chop top or a popcorn or Maltese or whatever the other beautiful things they offer at the snack bar. So we've already had one of our cinema partners reported a 6% increase in ticket sales, and then on the back of that, obviously, is the money that comes into the till at the candy bar spend. So it's a, it's a real positive for cinemas where you know they're operating an industry with such low occupancy. So it would be very much a win-win. We call it a win-win, yeah, absolutely. So win for the cinemas for exactly those reasons I mentioned, but also a win for... 70% of Australians currently go to the cinema, so it's a much-loved pastime. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the demographic that's really been declining is that millennial group. Um, around 30% of millennials buy at the box office at the moment. Uh, on Chuvi we have 52%, um, but it's increasing of our Chuvi goers that are millennials. And um, the reason, predominantly the reason we find through our research is that millennials are often the group that are paying the top box office price. So they're not a senior, <clears throat> they're not a student, they're not a child, etc. But So they're often paying the top box office price and there's a lot of competing ways to see a movie you know Netflix illegal downloading whatever it may be um, the other thing they're very tech savvy which we know are the early adapters if you looked at the general population so it's a win for them too because they get to go to the movies more often and see a movie the way it should be seen on the big screen um, but also for them they're interacting with the technology in a way that they're getting more and more used to, you know, millennials are used to dealing on their phones with technology, booking online, with and, an integrated platform. And, and so you're bringing millennials to the cinemas? Yes. Yes. That is our... That's our real niche market that we're, um, that we're focusing on and, 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 you know, one that, as I said before, unfortunately is a declining group and a group that this, tr traditionally cinemas have found very hard to engage with. You know, we... We have, there's, you'd be surprised how many uh, cinemas in Australia don't have websites, much less online booking capability. Uh, one of the majors here in Australia doesn't even have an app. So, you know, technology is, is ever advancing, as you would know, Lena, it's ever advancing, you know, hourly, if not daily, if not hourly. But 
um, you know, we need to make sure that as a technology tuvi that we all ke- always keep to the forefront of that, that technology. And you're actually providing, in effect, like a website for the cinema that doesn't have a website. Yeah, and it, exactly. So that's actually one of our other revenue streams is there's so many independent cinemas in Australia that don't have a website. Uh, or don't have online sales capabilities. So they might have a static website with no online sales capabilities. So what we're actually beta testing across four cinemas at the moment is building them a website with online ticket sales capability, um, which is a, a Tuvi under underpins that, that technology. So for us, if someone buys a ticket on Tuvi, we get the, the revenue from that. But if they buy now online through these beta sites across our four cinemas, we also get a clip of that online ticket. Now, the other exciting part is that you're raising equity through uh, yes. equities. Yeah, equitise, yeah. Equitize. yeah. Yes. It's really, um, <clears throat> it's very exciting for us. This, it's, you know, it's new, it's, it's brand new. It only, yeah. The law's only changed in Australia, as you know, in, in January of this year. So, um, you know, the equitise, for them, it's, they've been in New Zealand, absolutely, and been very successful in New Zealand beforehand, but it's, this is a new market for them. So they're a start-up too, and they've got a vested interest in making this work. But um, for us, is we, when we looked at this versus VC, is we realised that we could actually double down on our marketing dollars because we have, um, you know, we've got 30-odd thousand subscribers now, and it's growing daily. And to be able to offer them the ability to buy into a company for as low as a tech company for as low as twenty five, sorry, two hundred and fifty dollars, is generally something that's been only really available to highly sophisticated investors with very deep pockets. So, what we're doing now is being able to go to our our Chuvi goers and say, here you can have a bit of Chuvi and enjoy the ride and the success with us. And what that does is it creates a very powerful group of not only emotionally invested but financially invested Chuvi goers, but also shareholders that are using our our offering. And what do they get out? They share a share of your profits. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So uh, when you go through Equitise crowdfunding, so you're actually um, um, buying into the business so you're receiving equity for your investment so any upside for us um, you know whether it be IPO a sellout um, you know dividends in future that that is all available to our shareholders so where do you see Chuby developing from here what are your plans after you raise money through Equitize yeah are you planning something like perhaps an IPO so what, initially what, we're, uh, what we say is, for us, Australia is relatively a small marketplace uh, in, 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 for cinema. Um, so by mid of next year, we've got slated to be in the UK, Ireland and New Zealand. Um, and the future ahead of us is the US. But the markets, the, the makeup of the markets in the UK, Ireland and New Zealand are very similar to, they are, to what they are here in Australia. So there's an easy step for us. Certainly our technology was built that we could expand internationally uh, very quickly. And it's proprietary software. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So um, that's what... So this, uh, this crowdfunding, um, these finances will be put towards that international expansion... And the other thing, too, is making sure that we continually grow our Chuvi goers. What we need to make sure is we have a cinema where there are Chuvi goers and where there's Chuvi goers, there's a cinema. So every time we bring on a new cinema, we have to do a significant amount of work to make sure that the word gets out there, that people start using Chuvi and start relying on Chuvi as a way to seek a ticket. Um, so for us, we we say that, you know, in in... 
uh, we would say in the next sort of four to five years that we would be looking either at an IPO or a buyout. That's quite exciting. Yeah. And uh, it'll be fascinating to watch you grow. And uh, Sonia Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Uh, Nicholas Green, you've had an interesting exchange later, lately with one of the no, with the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman. Tell us about it. Well, I was giving a, I was launching <coughs> the memoirs of Max Corden, and Max Corden is Australia's greatest trade theorist, I guess, um, and he uh, wrote some seminal uh, books on trade, on on the the economics of trade, particularly in the 1970s, and. The comments I made in the memoir were that the the um, the economics that he showed us was the sort of economics that most people would recognise: simple supply and demand diagrams, and what I call economics as clarified common sense. And after Max uh, did that work in the 70s, he decided he didn't want to stay focused on that area, and he went into international monetary economics and so on. Another reason that he um, didn't stick around in trade theory is that trade theory was becoming much more mathematical, and Paul Krugman was mounting an an assault on the summit of um, a very difficult problem, which is how do you build into economic models the realistic features of our economy. So the sort of models that Max Corden was working with are called models, well, uh, there's a term in economics called perfect competition. And it's a very simplifying assumption for our analysis to assume that all firms are price takers. In other words, they can't affect the price that they sell their produce because there's so much competition in the market. So if you think about a wheat farmer, a wheat farmer just sells into a market for wheat and it doesn't matter unless they're an awfully big wheat farmer, uh, it doesn't matter how much wheat they grow, they get the same price. Now, it turns out that if you absorb, if you incorporate this more complicated feature of the world, which is the fact that most firms have some pricing power, right down to your local shop, they could put up the price of a sandwich or a hamburger by 20 cents. And, you know, over time that would reduce the demand, but that's fine. They, that It's not the case that if the, it's not like the farmer who says, well, I want to sell my wheat for $8 a bushel and the market's paying $7.50. Well, <laughs> the answer is they don't sell their wheat. Now, it turns out that as Max Corden knew, and as people had warned through the 20th century, the moment you start introducing these more realistic assumptions into the, your model, you end up with a model that doesn't do what a model is supposed to do, which is to give you some insight. So it's more realistic, but the world is, more, is the most realistic model of the world, the world itself. And the whole reason we build models is to try and gain some insight, some you know, focus our attention on very specific things. So... There are two ways to interpret this. One is that this barrier between perfect competition and more realistic ways of presenting competition is a sort of a, well, it's a very hard barrier to cross and to 
when you cross it, you can put it into your analysis, but then your analysis doesn't tell you anything interesting because every time you ask it, well, will prices go up and down? It says, well, it depends. Um, so on the one hand, you have people like Max who stay in this perfect competition world, which has its limitations because it's not very realistic. And then you have people like Krugman who spend a decade building a whole bunch of theory to show us how we can incorporate more un, more realistic features. Just a single feature, which is that firms have some pricing power. And then we end up with all this theory and it doesn't tell us anything very much. So I actually critiqued that. I said, well, Krugman thinks that it's self-evident that a mathematical formulation of an argument is superior to words. And I said, it's pretty clear now but I said it might have been thought about all the way along because this is the sort of thing that theorists had talked about throughout the 20th century it's pretty clear now that all that work didn't get us very far not not that we shouldn't have tried but we should have had much more awareness of that as a possibility all the way along and Krugman didn't like that and he um, hopped into me he did. He had a go at you. And Joe, but you have a great quote. You say Krugman is around the most brilliant and useful economist we have, but his most brilliant work isn't useful, and his most useful work isn't brilliant. Exactly. So Krugman got the Nobel Prize for this, what I call a Tower of Babel, which is trade theory. And he certainly showed us how clever he is. Uh, and, and so that's his most brilliant work, but it wasn't very useful. Now, I think of Krugman as the best economic journalist since Keynes, He's incredibly insightful, pathologically clear-minded, uh, fantastic expositor of economic ideas. But also as an economist, after he did the, the new trade theory stuff, um, he did something similar in economic geography, which I don't have much time for either. Then, he, but, but another area of his work is international macro, which is macroeconomic relations between different countries and different blocks. So he provided some fantastic commentary on the uh, setting up of the euro. Uh, I remember reading that at the time. He wasn't, he didn't actually say this is going to be a disaster, but he did say, look, guys, I'm not really sure why you're doing this. And you do know, you do realize that the EU is not an optimal currency union and you will end up with a periphery that is... Um, uh, in a kind of maybe in a rolling d depression, it, 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 the kind of situation we're in now. He then studied Japan and and wrote a book. It's in my bookshop. I'll t uh, bookshelf. I'll look around see if I can see it. No, I can't. But he wrote a a book. Yes, the return of depression economics, uh, and that was before the global financial crisis. And basically, he nutted out what was going on in Japan that greatly interested him. And he said, this can happen here. And now it has. So that's what I'd give him the Nobel Prize for. And that was him pursuing economics as clarified common sense rather than a blizzard of equations trying to climb Mount Impossible, which is what he got the Nobel Prize for. But uh, the issue is that the formal models of uh taken as a highly writ. I mean, I mean, what, how does it affect other areas of economics? Um, well, um, the, we have this idea that the people who do the numbers understand the economy better than, than or, well, 
the, the, there's just a whole set of problems. One is that we valorize people with these models without asking how good are the models, how much do they tell us. One of the remarkable things that Philip Tetlock said, and Philip Tetlock wrote a famous, a, a famous bestseller called Super Forecasters, and he was looking at who's good at forecasting and weather forecasters have got two or three times as good at weather forecasting in the last couple of decades uh, than they were, you know, now than they were two or three decades ago. Economists have never been, well, they've been basically awful at forecasting and certainly forecasting the important things we want to know about. And they haven't got any better over the last few decades. And one of the things that Tedlock says is that economic, uh, is that weather forecasts Weather forecasts, weather forecasters don't suffer from overconfidence. Why? Because when you hear a weather forecast, remember what they say? They say things like there's a 30% chance of rain. So weather forecasters are making forecasts and marking themselves to market every time they make a forecast because they say, this is my forecast of how often, uh, 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 this is my forecast of the chances of rain. What you can then do is you can backcast all the forecasts and say, what proportion of times, how much, you know, what, when some, of all the predictions of 30% rain, how often did rain occur? And if it's 30%, they're giving you a good, they're, they're giving you good information about how much they know. Economists don't do any of that. Economists just say, oh, we think growth will be 2.5%. Well, what are the chances of it being 2%? What are the chances of it being 3.5%? They don't provide forecasts like that, so they're constantly overestimating the power of their models. Uh, and that's so, – so economics – is in love with all these models, but not in love with trying to have a responsible understanding of how much value they add. Pretty amazing, but a true, a, a true fact. So the obsession with formal models is what brings economics down? Uh, well, that's just one of the things. But, um, but yes, there is a lot of what Frederick Hayek called scientism in economics and scientism is the imagining that by using the techniques that are used in the natural sciences that you are therefore being scientific uh, so so i mean i don't want to overdo it i'm not suggesting that economists shouldn't produce forecasts with numbers in them and shouldn't have models but yes there's there's no doubt that uh there's no doubt that 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 econom in my view uh, that economics has long ago departed from a self-image, uh, an image of, of itself as clarified common sense. And what it thinks of itself now as, and what students are taught, is a whole bunch of techniques, a whole set of ways of formalising what happens in the economic world, and the uh, students are not really very happy about this when they first encounter it. So when you start an economics degree, it's still the case that you are shown very, very abstracted definitions of what a consumer is. You, 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 they say, you know, they give you a little, uh, 
a little set of coordinates and they say, you know, consider a consumer and they've got to choose between good A and good B and we'll give them a budget line, a certain amount of bu a budget. And, um, and, and very quickly you're into this abstracted world where, which, which you can call the logic of pure choice. And there's a great deal more to walking into a, just to in walking into a milk bar than, than just the logic of pure choice. There's all the psychology involved, uh, just so much more than that. And it's a good thing to try to introduce people to abstractions and to particular ways of looking at things which help you structure questions. But economists are sort of given this blizzard of techniques rather than helped to use these techniques in a in a constructive and imaginative way and to shape those techniques and those tools to specific circumstances that's i mean i've basically built my business lateral economics on the scarcity of that and the value that can be added when you just use these very powerful and simple ideas from economics but you adapt them to the individual circumstance that you're in and you try to remain reflective throughout about how much value these these approaches add and how much we still don't know. And most of the time, we, we what we don't know dwarfs what we do. Well, Nicholas Gruen, your discussion with uh, Paul Krugman obviously produced a lot of value and uh, these are fascinating ideas and uh, great talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the US president is once again using Twitter to position himself for the tough trade talk with the EC's President Juncker. He tweeted that he loves tariffs because it brings countries to the negotiating table. There are clear signs that both the US and China are preparing for a long game in the tariff war, and the CIMB has warned that the trade war will get worse. China is looking for new ways to pump its slowing economy as a trade war with the United States escalates. Beijing has announced a range of measures, including tax cuts, infrastructure spending and new loans to business, as it tries to reinvigorate economic growth, which has begun to slow in recent months. The tax cuts for business are relatively small, worth about $10 billion, but they come on top of the much bigger injections of funds into the banking system in recent weeks, aimed at boosting activity. And Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison has backed a rethink of the World Trade Organization, saying that the system was built for a different time. Amid the escalating tariff war between economic heavyweights, the US, Europe and China, Mr Morrison said current WTO rules have been unable to resolve the things that have led to these current tensions. The US and France have called for an overhaul of the organization and lobbied Australia and other countries during a G20 finance minister's meeting in Buenos Aires last weekend. And the Turnbull government's national energy guarantee would save the average household $550 a year on electricity bills, which is $150 more than first estimated, according to a final design proposal that has been sent to state and territory leaders. The design, put together by the policy's architect, the Energy Security Board, also forecasts the electricity sector will achieve almost all its decade-long emissions reduction target in 2020-21, the first year of the policy's operation. And a correction in the Australian building industry is coming, led by a steep drop in apartment construction in the eastern states, where home price growth has been strongest. According to forecasts by industry analyst BIS Oxford, 
Falling investor demand and high land prices will contribute to the sharpest contraction in residential building since the global financial crisis in 2008. Residential starts are forecast to fall 23% over the next two years, contributing to an overall fall in building construction of 10% across Australia. And about 3,000 investors have signed up to participate in a class action against miner BHP over the Samarco Dam disaster of 2015 that alleges the miner breached continuous disclosure obligations and engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct. The Statement of Claim, filed in the Federal Court of Australia, alleges that a number of problems were encountered at the Fondal Tailings Dam in Brazil in the years before the disastrous dam failure in November 2015 that killed 19 people, flooded three communities, left people homeless and caused widespread damage. The claim also alleges that spending on safety and maintenance of a tailings dam declined during the period from 2012 until the dam's failure. The dam was a De Samarco iron ore operation in Brazil. Now, Samarco is a joint venture between the Brazilian miner Vale and BHP, and the applicant in the case is Victorian investor Vince Impiombato, who is being represented by the specialist class action law firm Fee Finney MacDonald. Investors in BHP's Australian listed stock and its London listed stock have signed up to the case. The statement of claim alleges that BHP was aware of the dam failure risk no later than August 27, 2014, and should have immediately informed the Australian Securities Exchange of both this risk and the consequential financial risk. The statement of claim alleges problems were encountered at the dam in the period 2009 to 2011, with further problems encountered at the dam in the years 2011 to 2014. And in a damning assessment of a national broadband network's long-term commercial viability, global credit ratings agency S&P Global Ratings has warned that a politically damaging write-down of EMBN now appears inevitable. The report, Australia's National Broadband Network Disruptor and Disrupted, shows how successive Australian governments have underestimated the complexity of the national broadband network. The report says that slower price rises and consumer expectations of price cuts for the internet access raises the prospect of write-downs. The report says MBN subscribers are not as sticky as once thought, and regulatory mechanisms risk becoming obsolete should enough subscribers switch to mobile substitutes like 5G, turning the MBN into a network of last resort. Now, the Turnbull government had previously rejected suggestions of a write-down on its $29.5 billion investment and had loaned the company $20 billion to complete the project after MBN Co. could not raise the capital in the open market. And while we're on telcos, a new report has found that customers are waiting an average of 13 days for telecommunications issues to be resolved with more complex problems taking up to two months. The Australian Communications Consumer Action Network found that Australia's two biggest telcos fared poorly with 61% of Vodafone customers saying they had a positive experience in dealing with the telco, compared to just 43% and 42% for Telstra and Optus, respectively. TPG Ironet, Amazon, Dodo iPrimus came in at just over 50%. Belong and regional provider Activate.me were the lowest ranked telcos, both getting positive scores of only 36%. And the demerger of Coles from the West Farmers conglomerate is scheduled for completion in November, pending shareholder and regulatory approvals. In an update posted on the ASX, West Farmers said it would retain a 15% interest in Coles with 50% ownership of the flybys program. 
West Farmers says Coles intends to operate with a dividend payout ratio of 80 to 90% of net profit after tax, which is in line with the dividend policy of West Farmers. In its statement to the market, West Farmers said it would support the strategic alignment of the two companies in the areas of data, digital and loyalty. Coles will list on the ASX with a net debt of around $2 billion and total debt facilities of $4 billion, which will provide ample capacity to meet liquidity requirements. And the announcement of the Coles demerger was initially made in March, and West Farmers said a Coles spin-off would allow it to be more nimble in pursuing growth opportunities. And National Australia Bank has banked to the pressure brought by the Royal Commission and will stop charging drought-effective farmers penalty interest rates for missed repayments, despite telling the inquiry just a few weeks ago that the practice met community expectations. In response to pressure from Federal Agricultural Minister David Littleprow, the bank is also allowing farmers for the first time to use their farm management money to offset against loans. Mr Littleprow said the change could potentially help a lot of families. And pure play online retailer Kogan.com's full-year revenue grew more than 40% in 2018, according to the quarterly cash flow and trading statement released to the market. And that would put the full-year result due to be announced next month at $405 million compared with $289.5 million in 2017. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortisation for 2018 was more than 90% higher than 2017's figure of $12.5 million. Kogan.com closed the year with active customers of 1,388,000 compared to 955,000 the year before. And Australian companies are being ripped off more than ever by customers, suppliers and cyber hackers using the dark web backed by organised crime. Advisory firm PwC revealed that customer fraud was now the number one economic crime in Australia, with 45% of companies surveyed attacked during the past two years. PwC's Global Economic Crime Survey warned businesses that organised crime syndicates using the dark web were becoming more sophisticated and now use new technologies to fake documents and IDs to infiltrate and rob organisations. Now, Australia is among 18 countries of the 123 in the survey where cybercrime is a growing problem. And the PwC Global Survey spoke to 7,200 respondents, including 158 from Australia. And former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett has vowed to fix the taxi industry if Liberal opposition leader Matthew Guy wins a Victorian state election in November. And Matthew Guy has vowed tough new English language tests for drivers, making Uber and other ride-sharing services more identifiable. And Mr Guy said that he would appoint Mr Kennett to head the commercial passenger vehicles Victoria. And wine exports have grown at the fastest rate in 15 years in the year to June 30 to reach $2.76 billion, and sales to China rose 55% in a positive sign for Penfolds on the Treasury wine estates. Total Australian wine exports to China are now almost three times the value of that shipped to the US, which is still the number two export destination. Total wine sales to China by all players in the Australian industry increased by 55% to $1.12 billion. That figure includes Hong Kong and Macau. Total wine exports were up 20% for the year, China overtook the US as the biggest export destination of Australian wine in 2016. And the spectacular growth has been largely driven by Treasury Wine through its Penfolds brand. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Danny May, the co-founder and CEO of emerging Australian startup Lingmo International, which has launched a new messaging translation service available exclusively on the new smartwatch. 
In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBioZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.